took you long enough. Well, you know, I had to, you know, I'm a busy man. I'm a busy man, Justin. There's a lot of things going on here. Check, check, check. One, two, two, two. Hello, hello. How do I sound? Do I sound all right? Sound like bullshit to me. Well, that's only about, it's about to come out of my mouth. Sorry, my shit's not together. It's been a long, drunken weekend, Justin. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's been a... Oh. Yeah. It's very interesting. Washington, Washington, six foot eight weighs a fucking ton. Opponents beware, opponents beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Let me lay it on the line, he had two on the vine. I mean two sets of testicles, so divine. On a horse made of crystal, he patrolled the land. With the mason ring and trouser in his perfect hands. Here comes George, in control. Women dug his snuff and his gallant stroll. Eight opponents' brains. And invented cocaine. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Washington, Washington. You want to you wanna start this thing off or do you want me to? I'll start off. Very good. Hello and welcome to Dorothy's Companion, the only podcast dedicated to Toto's music. I think, I think, you're, on the, we'll be I think you're on the wrong podcast, covering Dustin. I think, you're, I think that's... The rains down in Africa and uh, finishing up with the soundtrack of Dune. <laughs> oh, that's the wrong podcast. Oh, is that the wrong podcast? It's the wrong podcast. That's my other podcast. That's it's so close. It's so close. Do you know who else likes the rains down in Africa? No. Our our good friend Cameron Riley loves. That's one of his favorite songs. Plays it all the time. Oh well, I have a whole podcast about it, so check it out and uh, <laughs> hashtag Toto's rains down in Africa. Hashtag not real. Hashtag might be real someday. It's in production. <laughs> this is the third episode of George Washington in the POTUS Life Arena, and uh, it's a lovely day outside. Justin, it sounds like you've been drinking. Have you been drinking? No, I'm I'm on the wagon right now. Oh, I'm off the wagon. Oh, maybe that's why it sounds like you've been drinking. Maybe it's just because I've been drinking. Well, that's okay. Let's take let's take a little trip into our way back time machine. Last just episode, because he's less of a downer than our current political system. Well, so take it away. Woo. All right. Well, hey, welcome, everybody. Uh, As we're getting into this, kind of just to recap what we went over last time. Basically, George Washington has some family members. We talked about that a little bit. And then we we pushed to where we ended off, I guess, where he was going to set off and make a small little fort in the woods heading towards the Ohio country. Try to find off French encampments there. So on May 24th, 1754, Washington hears that a small French detachment is on the move. So he decides it's time to find a place to set up a defensive position in the event that the French attempt to attack him as he's wandering throughout the wilderness of the Ohio country in a meadowy area near present day Uniontown, Pennsylvania, called the Great Meadows. Washington attempts to build a little fort, perhaps calling it a fort is a little too much. He basically digs some trenches, clears some brush from around this meadow hoping to create a shelter from any gunfire that they might receive from the French. He's really flexing his leadership skills. He was giving it a go. 
he was giving it a go. It's interesting, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll hit on this again later, but as you said, he was flexing his leadership muscles. He was testing them out, seeing what that was all about. The problem is he didn't actually know what the hell he was doing. He had very little formal training and really, I mean, he just kind of followed somebody around before and took orders. So him going out and actually taking charge of something, this was the very first for him. He's never done this before. He's pretty young too. How young is he? Like 25? Yeah, he'd be about 23 to 25 at this time. 1754. Yeah, he's pretty young. He's a young dude. So, I mean, I think that there's a... Clearing brush, digging trenches. Feeling strong. Feeling strong. Loving life. Feeling like I, I actually, I, I try to kind of put myself in those shoes. I'm not, I'm not far removed from that age, but I did try to put myself in, in George Washington's shoes. And I think that if you're in charge of a group of men and you were sent out to the middle of nowhere and they're just like, here's some supplies, go have some fun, have a little journey. I think that a couple different things are going to be going through your mind as a young man. I think that you're going to be very excited to be in charge. I think that this is something that he he wanted. I think that he wanted to be part of the British Empire so bad. He wanted to experience what it was like. And I think that this was his first real taste of getting to do that. I think he was very, very excited. I think he was a little scared. But I don't I don't think in typical George Washington fashion, he ever let that hold him back. I think he's like, I'm just going to do this fucking thing. I'm going to learn on the way. I bought some books. I read those. Well, I, I read through them. I, I thumbed through. I looked at the pictures. I saw some he's pictures like and some boards. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I think that he was also a little scared going out into the middle of the woods where there are a bunch of scary Indians and uh, questionably a very large French uh, opposition that's just trouncing through the forest and you're like, well, we'll make a little fort here. So, uh, it'll be great. It'll be fine. We'll have like a little house in it. It'll be cool. So the very night that, that they start kind of digging this entrenchment, they hear movement in the forest and do what no sane military body would do. And they just start firing into the darkness. Again, I think this is George Washington's men being scared. I think that they don't trust his leadership yet. They don't know what to do. So his buddy, Christopher Gist, remember that was Christopher Gist was the guy that he probably didn't, but I'm really hoping had a broke back mountain moment with on that little sandbar in the river, <laughs> in the cold. So well, they were definitely huddled together. They were definitely, they, we know that George Washington doesn't have a foot fetish because Christopher Guest lost some toesies because of that. But apparently GW was just fine. So uh, take that for what it is. Christopher Guest might have had a little foot fetish. That's a possibility. I'm willing yes. to play with that. Anyway, his buddy Christopher Guest reported that about 50 or so French soldiers, apparently drunk, as you do, raided a cabin nearby. The half king also confirmed that the French were very close, about seven miles away uh, to his approximation. So instead of waiting for them to attack, Washington takes about 40 men and starts hunting for the French detachment in the woods, assuming that these drunk fucks could probably be easily overtaken. So in the middle of the night, in what could be called a very dark, confusing and treacherous area, definitely not ideal conditions. Uh, apparently, even a few of his men got lost in the woods. It was so dark on this night or probably just deserted because they were like, oh, we're just going to wander off over here because this guy's crazy. <laughs> um, 
And so in the morning, the half king led Washington and his men to the place where the French were. The location, a rocky secluded glen, led Washington to feel that these French men were on some sort of mission to find, capture, or kill the men under his command. Not wanting the French to gain the upper hand, he decided he should engage the French. He ordered his men to surround the French in this little glen, and as soon as the French caught on, they rushed as any normal person would do to grab their guns. And Washington, seeing this, and we'll get into this a little bit more later, what we actually kind of assume happened, but this is the quote unquote official story. Washington, seeing that the French were going to grab these guns, ordered his men to begin firing. And I just want to take time. I just want to take some time out and explain something. From what I understand, the whole idea of a surprise attack was not the tech was not really in the tactical playbook of a gentleman or officer of the Certainly British. not. Certainly not, sir. Bad form. Bad we will form. line up here and you line up there. And <laughs> I will shoot at you and you will shoot at me. And well, the most men that die wait, lose. It's not your turn yet. <laughs> I said, wait, that. I said, wait. <laughs> so, you know, really, this is perhaps the first time we see George using guerrilla warfare. Like, and that's kind of my point. And <clears throat> Spoiler alert, it also won't be the last. But this is really kind of some of the first stuff that we see George Washington, I think, kind of breaking rank of what a British military officer would possibly do and kind of understanding that they were coming up against forces that reacted differently than what a typical British formerly trained officer might do. So realizing that they were outmaneuvered and possibly outnumbered, the French threw down their guns. When all said and done, 10 French were killed and 21 were captured. Only one of Washington's men was killed. And apparently uh, the whole engagement took all of about 15 minutes from what we understand. But unfortunately for Washington, it appears he and his troops engaged a diplomatic envoy, which was definitely a big no-no. You don't do that. That's not what gentlemen do. Good day, sir. I said good day. Um, This is... America. (laughs) This is America. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that's actually kind of why he was fighting some guerrilla warfare because he's like, fuck it. This is like a whole new thing. Uh, I actually don't think he thought that. I think he was just like, fuck, I'm scared. And there are people with guns and this is crazy. And there are some Indians. Well, I mean, we'll get into that. Like I said, we'll kind of, we'll kind of get into that more later. Hold on. Hold on. We'll get there. We'll get there. And so not only did he kill some of the envoy, they killed the diplomatic messenger himself, Joseph Colon de, Ver- de Viers, Senor de Jomneville. Uh, so sure. So, right. It's a name. We'll call him Senor de Jomneville because that is kind of what they refer to him in the uh, historical context. But uh, oops, oopsies. This is pretty bad. This event does have two sides, though, like I said. Uh, the French claim that they woke up in the morning, surrounded by English, made an attempt to surrender. Monseigneur de Jomneville began to read aloud the diplomatic message and was shot in the head by the English. <laughs> Although the French wanted Indian friends and were pretty quick to want to blame everything on the British to help their cause for going to war. So maybe this isn't exactly what happened. Meanwhile, Washington was basically like if you re- if you re- it was actually kind of quite funny to read through some of this. Washington basically was like, it was totally the Indians. And Ron Chernobyl's account reads that as Jomneville read the ultimatum, the half king stepped forward, split open his head with a hatchet, dipped his hands into the skull, rinsed them with the victim's brains, and then scalped him. And Washington added that 
basically the Indians came in with the remaining Frenchmen that were still alive and knocked the poor, unhappy wounded on the head and bereaved them of their scalps. That's a quote, which is an interesting way to put it. Knocked the poor, unhappy wounded on the head and bereaved them of their scalps. Washington detailed the full account in a letter he would send to Dinwiddie. He knew that the French were traveling through the woods like spies and not making their intentions overtly known. He would also complain about his pay again, which is a really funny thing to do at this point. I think I just totally killed a French diplomatic messenger, but more money. But could you like, I'm, I'm mostly doing a good job mostly beside like this thing, but it's okay. You know, uh, I just don't understand how he could not put aside the pay and fully understand the gravity, like the gravity of the situation that he just found himself in. I find it like quite hilarious. So Dinwiddie in response sent back correspondence to Washington, thanking him for sending the account and saying something to the effect of the French are not invincible when they are equally engaged with the British in the wilderness, which I'm not sure what that meant, but he clearly didn't grasp the proceedings of the incident fully. Dinwiddie wrote in a letter to the trade board that the little skirmish in the woods was by the half king and their Indians and that the British were merely auxiliaries to them. And that his orders as the commander of the forces, uh, and that would, so Dinwiddie's command to George Washington was to be on the defensive. So this was yet kind of another incident of someone saying the Indians totally did it. It was the Indians. They're sa- the savages, the savages, the savages. Um, and regardless of which account was more accurate, one thing is for sure. Washington was the commanding officer of a huge bumble in the forest. He was in command of an incident that would essentially be the shot that started the French and Indian war, whether it was a shot or a tomahawk to the head, you know, it, it, it varies. Uh, and ultimately Washington tried to play this whole event down. One reason being he didn't want to harm his military reputation. Another, because he didn't want to harm his reputation with the Indians that he very much understood he would need on his side if he had any hope of surviving fighting in the wilderness. Yeah. He's the destroyer of villages. (laughs) Remain there. He needs to keep it cool. He's like, it's going to be cool guys. We'll kind of like, we'll go through, we'll kill some people. It's fine. Like we'll cover it up. We don't have to tell the, the people with the money. It's fine. Um, so he heads, he heads back to his little camp in the woods. Um, and besides writing his account to Dinwiddie, uh, he also wrote to his brother Jack. And Jack was George's favorite sibling besides Lawrence. We see a lot of correspondence between the two. He will also later entrust Jack with various tasks. His letter to Jack recounted recent events. It's in this letter we see how George was drawn to war. Famously, he said to Jack, I can with trust assure you I heard bullets whistle and believe me, there is something charming in the sound. So absolutely charming. So maybe, maybe crazy. I don't, maybe just really excited about war. I don't know. Maybe, or maybe just, uh, showing off. (laughs) I think, and, and, uh, you know, the King would actually, the King eventually found out of England eventually found out that he had said this and he said, you know, basically, yeah, he'll, he'll go through a couple more of those and and then he can come back and tell me how exciting and charming it is. Yeah. I think that the letter was published in like a pamphlet in England. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, because again, George Washington over in England was actually quite a novelty 
Um, he's someone that had been where, and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day as we were walking through uh, some of the woods in Pennsylvania, presumably where George Washington may have walked, specifically when he was heading to uh, Fort Duquesne. But, you know, I was saying he he was very popular and very novel in England because he had been to places where in English maps it was only black. Like there was nothing there. Like no one had been there yet to actually really, truly grasp what was there. And they certainly hadn't taken note of it yet. Uh, people have been going out this way and people were certainly living out there. But as far as uh, sending official British envoys out there, George Washington was one of the first. And I think this really excited the British, uh, the, the common, he would definitely have his own like show on discovery channel or TLC or something. Oh no. He'd totally be one of those dick bags with like the really nicely like pressed shirt that he totally like, I think got from like the bass pro shop and then like, like a nice hat. I think, I think he would really have a nice hat and some pretty boots. <laughs> it was, it would have been pretty, you know, you know, had he gone out there, he would have been dapper as fuck. Like, that's how that's how he rolled. Anyway, I believe it. It's now May 29th. Washington was pretty sure the French were about to hear what happened in the woods and sent some troops to engage him. So he attempted to start to better fortify his position, the little thing in the woods. So taking a small little camp in the Great Meadows and attempting to build an encampment that would come to be known as Fort Necessity or the reason it was called that is because it was more or less the Fort of Necessity. Uh, Hurry up! Quick, get this fucking thing built. God, they're coming. They're coming. Uh, but this was a very, very crude structure. I mean, basically, there were some thin boards that were pushed into the ground in a 50 or 60 foot diameter circle to create an a- outer protective sheathing. This really wood bark or wood planks would have been covered with layers of bark and animal skins on the outside to help stop bullets from bullets from gets from getting getting and getting into the, the structure. Um, in the center of the circle wall, there would be a stock room built to hold gunpowder, munitions, and of course, rum. That's something that you're definitely taking into the woods with you, uh, duly noted. There were also some trenches and breastworks, or uh, a breastwork is a small mound, if you're thinking about it, dug around the outside wall of the structure. This is where the primary defense would have taken place. The whole thing was defended primarily by nine cannons that spun on pivots, which I kind of actually think is very exciting. I don't know. I got like really excited when I found out that they spun on pivots and every single mention of it was totally like these things spun around. So like they could shoot wherever they wanted to, these cannons wherever they wanted to very quickly. Um, so during the building of the fort on May 31st, Colonel Joshua Fry, commander of the entire Virginia regiment, died after he fell off a horse. Pussy. Placing George in charge of all the regiments of Virginia. Have you ever fallen off a horse? I have. No, I actually never have fallen off of a horse. That seems interesting. Like, that's a pretty tall. You know what's? You know what's funny? I'm, I've actually been. Uh, I've been covering all these horse races as part, part of my job is to you know go around the country and do all these broadcasting events. I've been covering all these horse races, and those horses are fucking tall. Like, and when you see these, I mean, jockeys take spills off of these horses, and dear God, it is quite brutal. So I get it. I mean, you could totally die from falling off a horse. I just really wanted to say the word pussy, I think. Um, <laughs> but you know, this is all pretty lucky for George, uh, a guy who was very eager for higher military command. Yeah. Josh Fry pulled the real Christopher Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. That's funny. 
Yeah, but like Christopher Lee Reeves kind of like lived for a little bit longer. Like this guy just died. But did he? Did he really <laughs> live? This guy was fucking Superman. I had everything. Oh. So anyway, June 14th rolls around and the French still have an attack, which I think is kind of interesting, but definitely good news for George Washington. It was on the 14th that 100 men from South Carolina arrived to support him at Fort Necessity, making his total forces at the fort around 300. Now, I just, again, quick math here. You can't really fit like 300 people inside of a 60 foot diameter circle. So these people are kind of sleeping about. Not everyone's in this fort that's a military barracks. It's very secure. It like you can literally look through the wall and see the outside. And I mean, actually, yeah, they're from South Carolina. They don't mind. <laughs> uh, the bad news is with these South Carolinians, South Carolinians. Uh, yes. Uh, is a colonel of the British regular army named James McKay. This of course just pissed off George because he outranked McKay Kind of. But of course, McKay, who was part of the British regular, did outrank him in theory, if you're following kind of British military structure. Uh, And so McKay was going about bossing him and his men around, uh, even though he was only a colonel. And you better believe that George Washington sat down to fucking bitch about this with Dinwiddie. Like the pay isn't good. This a-hole is out here bossing me and my men around, you know, which he just didn't have any of that. Uh, So he definitely wrote to Dinwiddie. But then June 18th rolls around and Washington has some bigger problems to deal with. The half king and his other Indian allies noted an intense buildup of French at Fort Duquesne, roughly 800 French and 400 Indian allies. And so they were basically like, George, brother, as they called him, brother, uh, your little shitty fort is totally not going to hold up and you're definitely underprepared. So we're out. And the Indians headed off into the woods, uh, deciding to sit this one out, kind of wanted to wait and see who was going to win, you know, (laughs) not going to fight the wrong side. That's for, that's for sure. So on July 3rd, 1754, which actually is interesting. There's a, there's so many interesting things that happened on July 3rd for George Washington, this being the first of many. So on July 3rd, 1754 scouts reported seeing a heavy body in the woods. The Frenchmen were being commanded by captain Louise Colon de Villers, uh, who was actually the older brother of the slain Jean Neville. The force first stopped by the Glen, where the captain's brother was killed. And uh, there were some unburied bodies still located there. Actually, all of the unburied bodies still located there. So this guy was pissed. And now not only was he seeking to push out British forces... He was seeking personal vengeance. So the three columns of men descended upon the fort and bullets were flying from every direction. They were just firing into this thing. And unfortunately for Washington, kind of like I said before, he didn't really have a lot of experience in doing this. And he actually, well, he denied most of this stuff till like he died. So uh, <laughs> we kind of have to dig a little bit deeper to understand all this stuff because he kind of tried to neatly scrub it away. So... <laughs> He, he hadn't properly cleared the forest around the meadow, and this provided perfect cover for the French forces to fire at this target in the middle of a cleared area from the safety of, like, trees. 
and brush. Uh, and to top it all off, it began to rain really heavily. And because of the low-lying positions of the metal, meadow and the entrenchments <laughs> that they dug around it, the whole thing began to kind of fill with water. And it forced the men to fight waist deep in mud, not to mention all that water soaked the cartridges and firelocks of the guns of, of Washington's men. So not good, not positive for Washington, not going well. Um, and so if you will, Justin, imagine with me. By the end of this day, a hundred bodies of Washington's men, uh, the sun's starting to set a little bit, were littered all around the fort. And the French casualties, as we understand, numbered about three. Uh, and also at this time, Washington's men had gotten uh, really drunk, actually, after breaking into the storehouse and stealing all of the rum. So they're like, fuck. What else are you going to do? Yeah, no, seriously. They were like, fuck this. Like, we're totally all going to die. Uh, drink the rum all of the rum, like just all of it. And like, just we're going to fucking shoot some pistols that we can get to go off if they're not too wet. So around it's starting to sound like a PG 13 Disney movie. Uh, starring <laughs> Johnny Depp. <sighs> Maybe. So anyway, around dusk, the French signaled they were willing to negotiate. So Washington sent Jacob von Braun to negotiate the terms of the surrender. Again, Washington had worked with von Braun before on his, uh, first expedition into the woods. So familiar face. He surrounded himself with some familiar people. And uh, apparently it was raining too much and the translations were a little sketchy, but all said and done, Washington did surrender and he was allowed to leave the field of battle with all of his men, his weapons, minus the really cool swivel guns. The French are like, we will take those. Those are cool. And he was actually allowed to keep his colors, his flag. Unfortunately, and apparently unknowingly, in signing the terms of surrender, Washington admitted that the French attack was in retaliation for the murder and, and very, very explicitly the assassination of Monsignor Neville. That's incredibly powerful wording. And Washington had a ton of excuses as to why he signed the document, stating his forces assassinated a diplomat, saying things like they wrote it in bad hand on wet, wetted blotted paper. Obviously it was like we said, it was raining outside. No one could understand or read the translation, but, but Von Brahm. And, uh, that he also kind of said that we were willfully or ignorantly deceived by our interpreter in regards to the wording of assassination. And I do aver and will until my dying moment say that, you know, it was basically the interpreter fucked it all up for me. And, and seriously, he died saying that it he didn't, he, the assassination was never in there. Von Braun was with the British. He <laughs> totally helped them out. Like I wouldn't have surrendered, but really I think it's funny because for his first defeat, he was allowed to leave with everything. And uh, like everyone that was still alive, they're like, yeah, hey, yeah, get out of here. Scram, you know, go home. So, uh, the French also besides the swivel guns were like, we're going to take some of your personal effects, George Washington. One of the things they took was his journal that they printed in uh in france and circulated it and people made a lot of fun of george washington uh, mainly because again we he couldn't spell very well at all uh he couldn't write very well and they basically thought that he was an idiot they're like this guy's an idiot <laughs> because he has no idea of military strategy he can barely write and he's out there in the middle of the woods uh and he just killed a french diplomat so you know but uh, all in all he's uh, like duck dynasty 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting because all in all, at the very end of it, at the very end of it, didn't when he was like, you know, you were, you were brave out there. You were a brave little soldier. Uh, you did good. You did good out there. What about Duck Dynasty? Tell me more. I don't know. I've, I just, uh, dumb hillbillies, uh, <laughs> for French people to make fun of. Stupid American. Oh, look, he's so stupid. I, I think that's Italian, but that's okay. I'm not very good with. Yeah, that was pretty terrible. That's all right. You want to talk about spaghetti or something? I'm I'm really hungry, actually. I'm trying to get some Indian food here in a minute. Oh, calm down. Uh, one of my favorite quotes about the lessons, in quotes, lessons, Washington learned from Fort Necessity, from uh, Chernow, is the futility of trying to hold posts that could become death traps for soldiers <laughs> cooped up inside. A lesson Washington would have to re- relearn in the subsequent <laughs> war. Oops. <laughs> Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, you can't get fooled again. <laughs> Terror. Oh. But uh, after this debacle, George gets uh, Mount Vernon, well, partially, not outright, after his niece dies. Not sure how she dies in late 1754. And he's he starts living in Mount Vernon by renting from his brother's now remarried widow who acquired an annual rent of 15,000 pounds of tobacco. So they're just like, your rent is this much tobacco. And it was to be packed in 15 hogsheads. Seems Mm -hmm. legit. I want to see that contract. George also becomes involved with the military again when Major General Braddock enlists his services on his campaign to take Fort Duquesne in spring of 1755. Braddock makes him a volunteer captain. So Washington is like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to earn some brownie points with the the British military and once again start putting myself on the trajectory of a lifelong military career. Maybe build less forts by myself. <laughs> So he's about to he's about to get back into the into that military Brit, that British military game when all of a sudden his mom Mary Ball shows up and waylay his departure. He writes the British officer Captain Orm, who he's supposed to be meeting up with at this point. He writes the arrival of a good deal of company, among whom is my mother. Alarmed at the report of my intentions to attend your fortunes pre- prevents me the pleasure of waiting upon you today. Oh, his mother. Is As he intended. Crazy. Uh, what? <laughs> this makes me well, I kind of think that the whole cherry tree story of I cannot tell a lie might be true. Uh, sorry, I can't come out to play war because my mommy said no. <laughs> If I had been in that situation, I think I would probably make up any sort of lie other than mother won't won't let me. 
Like that's that's a time that you can avoid telling the truth. Eventually, Washington settles Mary down, coordinates the management of their properties and enterprises to his brother Jack. Uh, he finally meets up with Braddock and Marilyn. He's ready to make some connections to play the game. He wants to show these British officers that he's not just limited to his Fort Necessity days. Maybe fix those uh, conceptions about him. You know, really show those French people that he's not just a dumb duck whistler guy. And uh, Braddock wasn't the biggest fan of colonials. Kind of the typical British officer at the time. Uh, he was hot-headed and quick to make decisions without really thinking things through. He was going to do things the gentleman's way, and he was going to do them quickly. George probably learned a great deal because he himself wasn't the, the decider this time around. He was able to observe the missteps of Braddock, who was a stubborn mofo, not a flip-flopper at all. Braddock wasn't really willing to adopt the differences between conventional European warfare where, you know, you line up your guys on this side and then they line up their guys on that side and you kind of trade shots until enough of one side is dead. He wasn't willing to play the game that the French and Indians were already playing. All the while, George is playing pen pals with his mother while he's at on the trail to, to war his mother sends him weird requests while he's out in the frontier like hey give me some butter and and maybe maybe a dutch butler it's like george has gone out to i couldn't to believe it when i read this I, store down the road i couldn't believe that she wrote this i'm like this bitch is crazy she's just uh texting him to bring, to make sure he brings back a a butler and butter no mom i can't get you butter I'm like out in the boonies trying to get these big siege guns across the mountains. I almost feel a bit sorry for George at this point. He must feel like uh, pickling a ham sandwich where Braddock is this stuck up know-it-all Brit trying to shove this sluggish heavy army across the wilderness. Then his mom is barraging him with letters about butter and shit <laughs> my hands is, is sort of off to george for not losing his shit i mean i guess letter, literally later on he does lose his shit but maybe to distract himself from all that we get evidence that he's he's still trying to to bang sally fairfax oh yeah yeah you know the the wife of his his old friend george william fairfax he's writing her letters while on campaign and back then with people of such social and economic standing to have private correspondence with a married woman is practically the equivalent of sending a dick pic nowadays. This is pretty big roll, pretty big roll of the dice for Georgie to be doing this at all would have been considered a scandal back then. And, uh, given his track record of having his personal things public, uh, published in abroad and, is uh, probably not the best idea for him. Not wise. But, yeah, not very wise. But add to that, this is the same Fairfax family that had taken George Washington sort of under their wing. 
from an early way age. It's a total dick move on his part. And is, if it wasn't bad enough, Washington, who is serving as a volunteer on this campaign, is wearing out his horses. So he's without pay. He's without horses. And who is he going to turn to for help? The Fairfax family. They got that money, though. They, they do. got that money, though. Major key. Cash on cash on cash. I kind of <clears throat> I kind of did a little digging and I was trying to figure out how much money they had. It was I, I didn't really get to any conclusion, but they were incredibly wealthy. I mean, the the Fairfax father was really, I mean, very high up. So they had probably a very, very deep pool of cash to pull from, you know, and Braddock at the same time is also a little short of uh, some funds. So. Coincidentally, he sends uh, Washington to Williamsburg to get some cash money. And of course, on his way there, he couldn't resist heading to, how do you say that? Bolivar? Bolivar? Belvoir. Belvoir, which is where the little Miss Sally Fairfax was living. And uh, his little, he wanted to do a little flirting in person with his uh, crush and pen pal. Uh, And it is interesting because uh, she totally lays out a set of rules as to how he should contact her or speak to her, but she never really returns his affections. And George sort of pouts uh, about how she never writes to him, which I think is very funny because the whole thing is just inappropriate anyway, like you stated. So the fact that she's, she's first of all, like, okay, dude, if you want to like, if you want to like get some of this, like, you like just, you know, you slip the note to my friend, you write it to her, she'll give it to me. I'll know who you're talking about, you know? So she, she tried to lay out, but again, she, I think realizes at the same time that she's really moved up in the world and she's like, ah, I'm not really going to like, you know, the fuck all this up for some, you know, big hipped colonial guy over here. Uh, Those are big hands trying to move, move on up, moving on up. Uh, but it's, it's around this time that George once again writes Jack his, he voices his interest in perhaps wanting to run for the House of Burgess, uh, Burgesses and basically wants Jack to keep his ear on the ground and wants to know if people are secretly talking about him. Hey, are the people around you, are they saying things? Are they talking about your old brother, George? You know? And this is like such a Game of Thrones thing. I can imagine George Washington as various saying, my little birds tell me they're moving throughout the <laughs> it's kingdom. A really bad impression. I'm not. The impression's... <laughs> The impression is it? <laughs> what is a various? Th- my my little Varys? my little beds, my little beds is throughout the kids. That's a little better. I don't I don't know, man. George Washington is no Varys. No, well, because he has balls. They might not work, but he's got them. You know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Have I ever told you how I, they took my parts? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have told me. They took my parts. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> In June, Braddock realizes he is moving entirely too slowly if he wants to actually get to Fort Duquesne at all. Um, So he takes Washington's earlier advice and detaches about 800 men, which is a lot of men, uh, to march ahead. And I mean, think about it. While the English are working on building this fancy, perfect road towards their target, slowly, uh, the enemy is totally gra- gathering strength, and that's, you know, Braddock is moving towards Fort Duquesne, knocking down all these trees. They didn't want to take the previous route, of course, because, uh, well, basically it was just politics. And so let's go ahead and take way too long to make this perfect fucking road. 
and we're going to get all of our supplies and everything through it. And, uh, you know, that's just not how every, like, like, that's not how war works. War doesn't wait for you to build a really pretty road to get somewhere. Although the British would like that. Um, so the French were like, yeah, like totally take your time and do that because we know exactly where you are and we know when you're going to get here. So, Instead of getting to relish in the fact that Braddock decided to heed his advice, uh, Washington came down with some good old Oregon Trail style dysentery that also caused him to have some hemis, little hemorrhoids. And uh, boy, do I feel his pain. Been there. Done that. The, the hemis. TMI. The hemis, not the dysentery. Um, <laughs> and so on June 23rd, Braddock sends Washington to the rear. To the rear. Uh, with some supplies so he can ride in a wagon and, and heal up, heal his booty. So speaking of supply chain, I just wanted to mention one specific side thing here. Uh, on this very specific mission, mission, one of the wagoneers was none other than Daniel motherfucking Boone. Seriously, like the frontiersman, Daniel Boone. That blew my mind. I didn't realize that like these timelines totally matched up and that Daniel Boone was like hanging out with George, Georgie Porgy and his Hemis in the covered wagon back there. You know, but I think that's very cool. Anyway, blew my mind. Getting back to the story. Closing in on Fort Duquesne. Washington, and they're out in the boonies. They are out. They are like, they are out there. Um, but they're trying to build a nice road. You know, they're bringing, they're bringing civility to these savages in, in the wilderness, uh, building them a nice highway. Getting good in and out. So uh, they're closing in on Fort Duquesne and Washington's feeling well enough on July 8th, in spite of the fact that doctors were bloodletting him and uh, powdering his bum with a little uh, carcinogenic antimony power powder. Just a little. Did I say that right? Is that, yeah, that sounds about right to me. Anyway, uh, although he was feeling better, he still had to sit on a cushion while riding on his Tell horse. everybody what bloodletting is. Oh yeah, should we we should get into that. So just a uh, little bit. Yeah, just a tiny little bit. We'll take a detour there. Um so this is totally a practice. I mean, it could, like this, they did this back in like, you know, medieval times uh, where they believed that your humors were slightly out of balance, your blood, there's something in your blood. They didn't really know how all that worked back then. Uh, so they're get like, it out of you. You got to get a little bit out. So what we'll do is we'll just we'll open we'll open a little hole somewhere in your wrist, on your arm, on your legs, on your feet, kind of specifically wherever you're having some issues, <laughs> and we'll just get the bad stuff out. Maybe we'll use a little bit of leeches. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe some snakes. <laughs> may, may, just maybe some snakes. They and, just throw snakes and leeches on people. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's a doctor. Like that's that's a doctor. A doctor's like, I'm gonna write you a prescription. You're gonna need like twenty leeches, a few snakes. We're gonna we're gonna cut the, around the heels a little bit. You'll bleed a lot. Maybe you'll be all right. Maybe not. It seems to work. Seems you know, to- I think I think Ben Carson was right. Obamacare <laughs> is is worse than slavery. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible Obamacare. Set, set your people free. Give them some snake. Give you need, well, Here's what you need. You need a good garden. You get some good foods in you, the organic only, and uh, get yourself get yourself some slugs. That's well, get yourself some leeches. Get yourself some snakes. Maybe a cross. Say a little prayer to. It'll be great. We have the best bloodletting. So, anyways, uh, blah 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 blah. Getting back to the story, closing in on Fort Duquesne. Hemis. Uh, although he was feeling better, he still had to sit on a cushion while riding on a horse. Uh, those Hemis were being a real bitch. Uh, 
So it's on July 8th that local Indian tribes requested that Braddock halt his advance so that a peaceful retreat of the French could be organized. Although Braddock desperately wanted some Indian allies, he wanted to be cool with the Indians, they wanted to wait and see how his first major battle played out. But Braddock was not about to wait on some damn savage Indians. And he truly believed in his uh, English troops' superiority over the French troops. And he assumed uh, that, you know, oh, wait, troops, troops, fuck, uh, were way superior to the French troops and Indians that were amassed to the forks of the Ohio. I would also like to take a moment and talk about kind of the Tri-River area, which is actually where I currently live. I live about a mile away from where Fort Duquesne is. Um, I, I see it like every day. And it's a really it's a really interesting area. Um, a lot of it's been redeveloped recently because basically when the Industrial Revolution came through here, it was a whole shit show and killed everything. But Yesterday, I was up on Mount McKinley, which is where Washington would have done a lot of these things. And to be able to sit up there and see down into the path that Washington took was quite magnificent. And I could totally see how it would be a very interesting and and kind of a little bit maybe frightening uh, way to just you know you're going to have to go over the Monongahela River and just yeah yeah like we're just going to boat over kind of come down these mountain areas, boat over a little bit, and we'll just attack those bitches. But it was all woods, heavily, heavily wooded. So the advanced force that was sent ahead of the road reached about 1,400 people by July 9th. The group reached the Monongahela River in the morning and began to cross, meeting a fortified force of 900 soldiers on the other side, fighting in what was called the Indian fashion. They were doing it Indian style. The men crossing were met was something that has been described as an eerie and haunting whooping of the French and Indian forces. Then, right before the British could fire, the French and Indian forces retreated back into the woods. See, I would have probably shit my pants. This really, seriously, is tremendously scary. I can imagine that... Pussy. I I may be. Why don't you fall off a horse while you're at it? (laughs) Uh, I can imagine... George, having participated in this sort of warfare before, knew that some shit was going down. And I don't think a lot of these other fuckers had any idea. I think they're like, oh, this is weird. Like, you know, we normally fight in a big open field where we can see each other. But I mean, whatever. You guys are like, it's dark outside. You guys are screaming and hollering over there. And then all of a sudden, dead silence and they can't see a damn person. When the forces met on the shore, there was such intense confusion on the side of the British because they were totally unaware of how to engage in this style of warfare. The British regulars even began to fire on themselves in the midst of the confusion. Braddock instructed George to detach with a few men and retrieve two cannons that had gotten lost. Two horses were shot from underneath of George. Multiple bullets pierced his jacket. Uh, And I have no clue how George, in a matter of days, went from grave illness to charging a hill under intense fire. With the Hemis, he must have been completely exhausted. Towards the end of the battle, Braddock was shot in the arm and lung. With just about all of his officers and aides to camp dead or seriously wounded, Washington was the only one left in charge. A barely conscious Braddock gave orders for Washington with the Hemis. I'm really on, I'm really into him. I'm not like into him, but like, I mean, I just think it's crazy like that he was in probably some really intense pain to ride for 12 hours to bring forward the supply train to assist the wounded. Washington essentially organized the entire retreat. 
Braddock shows high regard towards Washington, actually. He tells his servant to try and one day get a job with George because uh, Braddock kind of knows he's dying. He's a goner. So Braddock gives George some pistols and a red sash, which he apparently cherishes for the rest of his life. And Braddock totally dies and George oversees uh, a simple Anglican service, buries him in the road and then runs him over several times with supply wagons so that the Indians can't locate his body and apparently do like weird shit with it. Apparently that's a thing. I mean, they definitely wanted the scout, but I mean, like, I don't know, like what else he was afraid would have happened. So also speaking of that uh, Anglican service that George had, this is one of the first times we see uh, stuff popping up about George Washington's religion as an adult. Uh, And in a letter he wrote to Jack, he says, by the miraculous care of Providence that protected me beyond all human expectation, I had four bullets holes through my coat and two horses shot from underneath me and yet escaped unhurt. So George did have some sort of a religious belief, but it was, it was different. And we'll kind of, I want to get into that in later episodes. I just kind of wanted to peruse over that now and kind of talk, make a note about how this, this was. So yeah, the whole encounter was, uh, it was a complete disaster. A lot of British officers died. A lot of British died. The entire command structure fell apart the British regulars began to run for their lives. And Washington noted that although the British were scattered to the wind, the Virginians, his men, the colonials, held their shit. Um, which I partly believe because I totally think it's... Uh, I, I, I partly believe. But I also totally think it's Washington's resentment towards his treatment by the British talking a little bit when he mentions that. Uh, this battle also starts to see some myths that George Washington is some sort of superhuman that can't be killed. The Indians of the area actually noticed all these bullet holes in his jacket, all these horses being shot from underneath of him, how and how he just rushed directly into the heat of battle and didn't die. So the Indians are like, uh, this guy is, yeah, he's kind of like a uh, destroyer villages and totally we can't kill him. So that sucks. Time Lord. He's a time Lord, but this was a really disturbing defeat for the British and it proved that the British could be defeated on foreign soil. And that's something that was seriously previously unfathomable. Uh, in particular with the size of the forces that the British had over the French at Fort Duquesne. So this was a whole new, this was a whole new thing for them. And it was very, very, uh, I think shocking to understand that they could go in with superior numbers and completely be mowed down. And that's it. And that about wraps it up. So, Hey, uh, thanks for, thanks for listening again. Hopefully you weren't too bored. Peace out, Bean Bob. Thank you. Washington, Washington, six foot eight weighs a fucking ton. Opponents beware, opponents beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Let me lay it on the line, he had two on the vine. I mean two sets of testicles, so divine. On a horse made of crystal, he patrolled the land. With the mason ring and trouser in his perfect hands. Here comes George, in control. Women dug his snuff and his gallant stroll. Eight opponents' brains. And invented cocaine. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Washington, Washington.